Okay, well, good morning. My name is um, Frank Wong. Welcome to Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you're new, please do stick around after the service. We would love to get to know you a little bit. If you're not new, uh, please still do stick around and make it a point to talk to some folks that you might not know super well. We have a fairly uh, decent-sized congregation, and it's hard to know everyone really well, and yet we are one body. We are Potomac Hills, and so you need each and every one of the people and their gifts in this uh, church to build you up in Christ, and so please do make it a point to uh, meet with those that you don't know very well, um, especially those new folks that are here. Please welcome them uh, among us. And then, now if you would turn with me in your Bibles uh, to 1 Peter, we're continuing our series in 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and Jude. Uh, we're coming uh, to chapter 4 today. We've got the whole chapter. There's a lot to talk about. We're blitzing through uh, 1 and 2 Peter and Jude. We've got a whole chapter every week from now till Advent, which is fast coming upon us, which is crazy. Uh, and hopefully through our time in 1 Peter, you've learned a little bit about how Christians embrace suffering. If not, we're definitely going to be talking about it this morning, so please pay attention as I read God's word. This is 1 Peter chapter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of, t of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But, you will give, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead. That through, uh, though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the, way, in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another uh, without grumbling. As each has received a gift, a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? 
Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, we come uh, often comfortable with our lives, often uh, with a sense of security that things are working out fairly well for us. And Lord, we ask that you would give us a perspective of that judgment day, that as we go through this life, life for Christians does not promise to be easy and comfortable. But Lord, as we gaze upon that final day when you will come to judge the living and the dead, Lord, we ask that you would give us a gospel perspective on that day, that we would see what it means to trust in you and to know that we will be delivered. In the midst of our sufferings, in the midst of all things, we ask that we might see your great authority and your great grace at the same time. Lord, humble us, show us Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. So, um, how many of you guys have seen Christmas decorations already up in stores? Now, how many of you are like kind of angry about that? (laughs) Count me among them. Unfortunately, this morning we're starting with some Christmas music. And as we listen to Christmas music, we can sort of um, divide Christmas music into a whole bunch of genres, right? There are the hymns that we know and love so well, and then there's that secular music that is sometimes okay, but not, not great, right? Um, but this morning, I want to talk about one of the most interesting songs that I can think of, which is Santa Claus is Coming to Town. So you guys, you all know this song, right? You better watch out, you better not cry, you better not pout, I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. If there was ever a song about emotional repression parental manipulation, and apocalyptic consequences, this would be the song, right? It literally threatens kids into behaving properly with coal on Christmas, which we know from Dave's annual Christmas Eve serv- uh, like sermon is pretty terrible, right? And poss- po- possibly apocalyptic in nature to little children. But really, the, the song is right from a biblical point of view. The judgment is coming. But it's not Santa who's coming to either give presents or coal. It's rather, it's the Lord is coming to judge the living and the dead. And so, the reality that we will have to give an account to the Lord God, that is Romans 14, 12, he says that there, means that what we do today has long-term consequences that we often don't appreciate, just like Santa Claus is coming to town, just like that song tells us. Being able to see in the present that future judgment brings a new perspective to our lives. What seems reasonable, good, even pleasurable now is foolish, evil, and detestable in light of having to give an account to the holy and righteous God of the universe. It's that reality that Peter keeps coming back to here in chapter 4. Both subsections... Uh, verses 1 to 11 and then 12 to 19, revolve around this coming judgment. And so this morning, we're going to see how judgment informs our transformation in Christ in verses 1 through 4, how judgment informs our suffering in verses 5 to 6, how judgment informs our present behavior 
in verses 7 to 11, and then how judgment informs our expectations of this life in verses 12 to 19. So let's start with how judgment informs our transformation in Christ. Starting in verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what, uh, for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and the malign you. Well, where do we see the judgment that is coming in these verses? We actually, don't we have to get to verse 5 before we begin to talk about giving account? Well, yes, but the coming judgment is actually seen right there in the first clause of verse 1. The suffering Christ has suffered in the flesh. You see, for Christians, Christ's suffering on the cross was judgment day for your sins. While we will still give an account on that final day, we will actually say before the throne of God that the judgment for our sins has already been carried out because it's been carried out upon the Lamb. And that judgment that Christ suffered for us as one who was righteous for the unrighteous is at the very heart of the gospel. And you see, Jesus, too, had a clear view of judgment day. When he came, he saw clearly what was going to happen on that final day. He knew that all the unrighteous people would be condemned and deal with eternal torment and wrath as a result of their sins. But such was his love for us, for the lost, for the sinful, for the unrighteous, that he came and suffered and died on our behalf. That's how we see the coming judgment right there in Christ's sufferings. And since we are united to Christ, when we are saved and transformed, we are called to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. This thinking doesn't give any thought to ourselves, but really considers others more significant than ourselves. Having the mind of Christ calls us back to Philippians chapter 2, which we seem to keep coming back to almost weekly. Since we sort of had our series on Philippians last year, this time of year, we keep coming back to the mind of Christ to counting others as more significant than ourselves, to being willing to suffer and die even for them. This is what it means that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. In Christ, we have been moved from a foundational selfishness and self-centeredness to a life that has a foundation in service and other-centeredness. That's what Peter means by no longer living for human passions, but for the will of God. You see, when we look at the judgment day as Christians, we ought to have the same reaction that Jesus had, an overwhelming desire to seek and save the lost. His passion should be our passion, and we ought not to be able to bear the thought of how many will perish not knowing Jesus. That reality that many will perish ought to move us to compassion, grace, and love. And so we will willingly and joyfully endure the sufferings of this world that we might show 
and be like Jesus. Why? That maybe some will see Jesus in us and come to know him through our ministry, through the fact that we are embodying Christ, and maybe some will be saved. And that willingness to suffer means that we have broken from the habit and power of sin. That willingness to suffer means that we will want to step in just like Jesus steps in. And that's that strange clause at the end of verse 1, right? For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. It's a little strange phrase. Well, what does he mean by that? It's much like a smoking addict saying that he's quitting cigarettes. He's ceasing from smoking. He might still go back and relapse and smoke from time to time. But he's breaking from the habit. He's breaking from the power that cigarettes had on him. And as he goes about quitting smoking, things are going to get tough. They're going to be withdrawal symptoms or even fellow smokers who will ridicule him. But if he perseveres, even amid the suffering, he shows his profound change. Think about that. Think about all that that smoker will have to go through. The intense feelings of wanting to smoke. And feelings like, look, man, we're smokers. That's who we are, right? Like, there's a profound disconnect when he's changing. And he's going to have to work through all the implications of that change. Because the heart sort of lags behind the mind often. That we are slow to change who we are. Those feelings are going to be warring against his conviction and resolve to quit. It's not going to be easy or pleasant, but the willingness to suffer for the sake of quitting this habit shows that cigarettes no longer hold power over him like they did before. And same for our sinfulness. When we are willing to suffer for righteousness' sake, then sin clearly no longer has as strong a hold on us as before. It's going to be hard. We might even crave the sin that we once enjoyed, but that's not who we are anymore. We have ceased from sin, not ceased to sin. And as we remain righteous amid personal suffering, both internal, those feelings and emotions and those questions about identity, and external, all the forces that say, hey, just come back to the way things were. It's better over here. As we remain righteous amid that suffering, that, those hard times, we get to embody Christ. And it's surprising for the world to take. Remember, the religious leaders and the crowds and even the Romans were surprised at Jesus' choices and his career path, as it were. They were surprised that he wasn't about himself, that he wasn't about building his brand, that he wasn't about building followers and influence and likes and shares and follows that he wasn't about himself. And they would later crucify him specifically for that righteousness. And as we face both the internal temptations and the external persecutions, we need the mind of Christ that looks squarely at the judgment day and sees the great needs around us and be willing to suffer and even die for their sake. That's what it means to have the mind of Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. Which brings us to our next section, verses 5 and 6. Judgment informs our suffering. 
but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. When we hear those words, that they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, there's a little cheer that goes up in our hearts, right? Finally, finally they're going to get what's coming to them. The evil ones will finally get what they deserve on judgment day, that we will finally be vindicated. All those hurts and attacks that we suffer in this life will be made right on the last day. But I think that these verses point to more than just a simple, don't worry, they're going to get what's coming to them soon, soon enough. I think there's more to them than sort of simple revenge almost. And I think that a quick word about the ancient context will help us understand what these verses point to. Back in the ancient world, the fact that Christians died physically was taken as proof that their faith was ineffective. It went, the argument went something like this. If your God is so powerful and so good and so gracious and that he's going to deliver you unto life, why are you still dying like the rest of us? That's who Peter was referring to when he talks about those to whom the gospel was preached who are dead. He's actually talking about Christians who have already died. But those who malign Christians and question the faith and make those accusations against the faith miss the fact that judgment day is for everyone. That everyone has to give account. The only difference between believers and unbelievers is that we have the gospel. Remember, the gospel tells us that we have already been crucified with Christ and that we no longer live, but it is Christ who lives within us. We have Christ's resurrection life applied to us in our union with him. And so though we might die a physical death, we still live in the resurrection life that Christ has. Why? Because I am one with him. It's as Jesus says in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And so the unbelievers don't understand the life that we live. They only see the death that we die. But the death, even the death that we die, is meant to give God glory. Why? Because we get to be like him. That we are dying and being raised in newness of life. And that resurrection life that Jesus has is really and truly his vindication. Remember, all humans must give an account. Even Jesus must give an account. And invariably, every single one of us will be convicted as guilty because of our sins, except for one. And that's Jesus, of course. And yet he still bore the penalty of sin, which is death. But Christ's resurrection is his vindication. It shows that he was found to be perfect and righteous and innocent in every way. That he didn't deserve to die because death is the wages of sin. And so since he doesn't have sin, he shouldn't die. That vindication bursts forth in resurrection life. A life that is inexhaustible and cannot be overcome. It is that life that we are called to look to in the midst of our suffering. We know that judgment day is coming but we've already seen it in Christ. We see what the verdict and what the outcome will be, and we know that living in righteousness 
leads to resurrection life. To live in Christ, to love the things that he loves and the priority that he loves them leads us to resurrection life. As we are like him, we receive what he has. And so when we suffer for righteousness' sake, we know that we will receive the same vindication. When we suffer for doing good, when when we suffer as we show grace and mercy to those around us, as we forgive those around us of their sins, who has to pay? Well, we do. It's going to cost us something. Grace and mercy cost us something. And that something points to the grace and mercy that we have been shown in Christ Jesus already. When we suffer for putting away evil, we put our trust in the Lord Jesus to vindicate us in the end. That though it hurts now, it's going to be proven to be the wise and righteous thing in the end. And because of that trust and willingness to suffer and, and the way... Um, because of the trust and willingness to suffer, judgment then informs the way that we're to live, which is verses 7 to 11. And the end of all things that is, is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers over a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I think here in this section, the judgment to come connects with the fact that we are to be good stewards of God's varied grace. Here there is a combined flavor of the parable of the talents and of the servants watching to return for the master that Jesus told us back in the Gospels. You remember those two stories, right? The parable of the talents is about servants who receive a portion of the master's property, each to his own ability. To one was given five talents, to another was given two talents, and to another was given one talent. When the master returns, he expects them to have stewarded what he gave them well. And they're going to have to give an account of that stewardship. And then the parable of the watchful servants tells of servants waiting on the master to return from a wedding feast. Jesus says that those who are found ready and awake will be blessed by the master, even more so if they have to wait to the second or third watch of the night. But those who are not ready and are asleep will receive a severe judgment. In the same way, that, in the same way we know that the Lord is returning soon. The end of all things is at hand. We have been given grace that leads to life. We have been given much. Ephesians 1 tells us that we have been given every spiritual gift in Christ. So we have been given much. And so as with the servants who have been given talents, everything that we have is the Lord's. It all comes from him. None of it is ours. And when he returns, we will be called to give an account of what we have done with what we have been given, which is our lives. And so the command here reflects the mind of Christ. Did you notice that all the commands are other-oriented, other than the call to be self-controlled and sober-minded? 
to love others, to care for others, to show hospitality. But even the two that are not other-centric, the self-controlled and sober-minded, those deal with controlling and putting to death the human passions that we talked about in verse 2. And even those have an eye towards caring for others as well. For, after all, my own sinfulness, no matter how private it is, still impacts those around me, even if I can't see how it does. And so my own holiness is a matter of community concern. There was a really famous preacher once. I can't remember who it was. I feel like it was Spurgeon because most of the famous quotes are by Spurgeon, right? This famous preacher said that the greatest, the thing that my congregation needs more than anything else is my own personal holiness. Why? Because holiness impacts everyone around you. Sinfulness impacts everyone around you, no matter how well you think you hide it, no matter how well you think you keep it to yourself. And so all of these commands essentially put others as more significant than ourselves, to see the judgment coming and to have compassion towards others as they have need. That's the point of this. But what about the good things that the Lord has given you? Those spiritual gifts and talents are given to you to serve others with. And before you say that you don't have a spiritual gift, you do. You have one. It's right there in the Bible. It says that you have a gift. Each has received a gift. It might not fit neatly into any of the categories that we might often talk about when we talk about spiritual gifts, but it's definitely there. And it's also different from other spiritual gifts. The diversity of gifts is great because the church body needs a lot of different things to encourage, grow, and protect it. Did you notice that the word was that we are to be good stewards of God's varied grace? That that grace comes to us in different ways, that each of us will experience that grace in a different way, and that the gifts that we receive are different. And so the way in which you serve the body, the way in which you serve Christ, looks different than the way that I will serve the body or Christ. And praise God for that. We do not need more than one of me. The, the church would be in a lot of trouble if there would be, be more than one of me, let's be honest, okay? And so you have been given a gift that is meant specifically for you. Each is given according to their own ability. And so as we look to the end of all things, there are numerous implications for our present. It's Santa Claus coming to town all over again. Will he be pleased when he comes with us when he comes again? How do we act as he, do we act as he does? Do others experience the master through us? Do we experience him in a new and deeper way when we live in light of the coming judgment as he does? Are we going to be good, represent, good representatives of him? And so when he comes to account, what will our answer be? And because of that coming judgment, not only does our behavior have to change in light of the coming judgment, because we often don't think of the coming judgment. We just sort of think it'll never come. But we don't know when it's going to come. It could come now. It can come in five seconds. It can come in a minute. It can come in an hour, 10 years, five years, a thousand years. We don't know when it's going to come. But he's going to come. And we don't often think of Judgment Day because it seems so far off. And yet we are still called to account here and now in this day to be good stewards of what the Lord has given us.
And because of that, our, beha- our behavior has to change, but also our expectations of this life as well, which is verses 12 to 18. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were, were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. For if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome for those who do not obey what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator who, uh, while doing good. So here, in this section, verse 12 usually gets all the fanfare, that fiery trial bit. Everyone wants to know what it is, and for good reason, right? The fiery trial is a terrifying prospect. And one made all the more so because of the original context. Think about all, the re- all that the original readers had to go through to get to this point to receive this letter. Right? They're suffering so much that the Apostle Peter feels like he has to encourage them with a, 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 a whole letter about suffering. It's pretty bad. It's hard. And then, here in chapter 4, guess what? There's more suffering coming, coming and it's going to be fiery and terrible. You've already endured unimaginable suffering. Guess what? There's more coming. It's going to be worse. Great. But again, the final judgment is meant to give us context and perspective on our current suffering, even if it reaches the level of a fiery trial. You see, we often go through this life functionally expecting things to work out and for us to be, and for us to be relatively comfortable. We're middle-class to upper-class folks who are highly educated and live in the wealthiest era in history. We like our comforts, and we really like a sense of security, which our bank accounts, education, and status as folks living in the only world superpower brings. But Christians aren't to be surprised when suffering comes. This suffering for righteousness is expected. After our, our master suffered and we, his servants, are not above him. And so we too should expect to suffer. We ought to rejoice in this suffering because we're sharing in Christ's sufferings. Paul wrote in Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. And so friends, when we suffer for righteousness' sake, when we suffer for Christ, we participate in his sufferings. And if we participate in his sufferings, how much more will we participate in his glorification? And in verse 14, and verse 14 should be a massive encouragement to us that in the midst of our suffering for him, we are not forsaken, though it might feel like it. Rather, we have the spirit of glory and of God resting upon us. Friends, all of this, as I said last week, is meant to bring us closer to the Lord. Not only that we might have the Holy Spirit resting upon us in a special way as we suffer, to experience a profound intimacy with God and joy as we suffer, but also to become more like Christ. 
When we become Christians, we say that we want to be like Jesus. And in the same breath, we say, as long as it's not too hard. But look at Jesus' life. It was going pretty well for him at the beginning. Lots of crowds, lots of people listening to him. He had a lot of influence. And then things turned, and he suffered greatly. I want to know love like Jesus loved. Jesus experienced an unimaginable amount of suffering on my behalf. I want to know the kind of love that, draw, that drives him to do that. I want to know faithfulness like that. I want to know grace like that. And that kind of knowledge only comes through suffering like he did. Unfortunately for us, we're not like Christ. We're often murderers, thieves, evildoers, and meddlers in our anger, our covetousness, sinfulness, and need for control. The time for judgment is at hand for me because it's at, time, it's at hand for them. It's at hand for me too. So what will my account be? That I deserve destruction except for the grace of God. And so I will, be, I will scarcely be saved but the ungodly and the unbeliever, it's not going to go down well for them. And so as we see the judgment come down upon us, it becomes not judgment, but discipline. The fiery trial isn't a judgment for sin, but a purifying crucible to sanctify us. We all know how this goes. We tend to trust in ourselves most of the time until things get hard and then we trust in Jesus. In a lot of ways, those trials become wake-up calls for us to call us back to him. Why? Because we can't do it ourselves. And so they become purifying. Do you see how the judgment day changes our expectations? It's not, it, now, instead of expecting comfort and expecting things to work out well for us, that we have sort of our life's plan sort of mapped out before us, that things will go well. We can expect the trials to come and that we rejoice in them because we will know that we, we, because we know that we will be saved on that day, because we know that Jesus has already paid for our transgressions, that the suffering that we endure is for our good, that we might be purified and become, be purified by it and become more righteous. When we suffer for our sin, it's not judgment against us, but rather a purifying trial that leads to our righteousness, which is for our good. And when we suffer for righteousness, it is a blessing, for we experience God in a new and deeper and more profound way as his spirit rests upon us. And so all things must work together for my good, both trials that purify me of my sin and trials that show and display the righteousness of Jesus. In both senses, I get to understand him better. I get to know him better. I get to be like him more. And so therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is what it means to trust in God. This is what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
to trust in him in the midst of your suffering. To know without a shadow of a doubt that he has already paid for your sins and to rest and rejoice as a result. To have a perspective that sees that final day, not just for the future reality that it is, but for the present implication and for the present value that it brings as well. This is how the gospel is not just a future promise, but has present value for us. That it helps us in the here and now, that it gives us something to hold on to. That that final judgment has already been proclaimed upon us. And so we know that the Lord Jesus is pleased with us. That all those final blessings we can enjoy just a taste of here and now. Are you changed by him? Will you suffer for him? Do you live for him? And do you give your perspective to him? That's a whole life faith. That faith sustains us today and every day until the last day when we will stand with him in righteousness. And on that day, he will wipe away every tear and make all things right. And we will rejoice knowing that Jesus has been with us all along through every trial and through every tribulation and through everything that you endure, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Is that what your faith looks like? Because that's the kind of faith that God wants to create in you, one that truly mirrors the mind of Christ, that seeks to suffer for righteousness' sake, that the unrighteous might be saved. Let's pray. Father God, we confess that we don't often have a perspective that you have. That we often are concerned with the here and now. And that we don't have a perspective that puts everything into context. And Lord, I pray that you would give us judgment day eyes. That you would give us gospel eyes. Eyes that say that the judgment that we will have to face, the account that we will have to give has already happened in you. That we have already seen the declaration of you are forgiven and you are loved in Christ. Lord, I pray that that perspective would seep deep into our bones, that we would live our whole lives by it, that we would live in step into suffering by it, that we would have our expectations of what is to come changed by that reality, that we would be gospel people, people who trust in you for our everything, for our today, our tomorrow, and our forever. Lord, give us strength to see. Give us grace and mercy to be like you, that we might step toward that judgment day in joy and rejoicing. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.